All right, if you want to have a seat, so great to see you. Man, it is so nice that you're here. We had, we're experiencing uh, reunions here this morning because we, we keep on having people return after ha- not having been back. Two of our sisters spent all of COVID. They, they were in the Philippines before, before it happened and have not returned till just recently. And so we want to welcome you. Can we give them a hand? Uh, glad you're, you're back home with us. So good. We're, we're man, um, such a great morning. I, I'm really excited about next Sunday. I want to, again, just reiterate Kevin's message to you to, to show up at our open house next week. A uh, few, few uh, years ago, I remember Scott Thiessen, uh he's the leader of our operations team, got up in an AGM and said, guys, we have a big problem. And he, he proceeded to tell us about the siding and the roof and the windows and just the need for this aging building that, like, there was a due date coming on it in some senses. And uh, I remember feeling, like, you know when you hear about a problem like that, you just want it to go away and think that maybe if you think, don't think about it, it'll, it'll go away? Well, it hasn't go, gone away. And over the years, we've had to have, I, I, you, you haven't seen it because we've got such a great ops team, but big buckets and garbage cans placed around the facility collecting water and uh, Woodpeckers tearing away at our facility regularly over the years and, and uh, sticking pencils, being able to stick a pencil in the siding. Um, but I, I want to tell you, and, and the Lord reminded me of this of this, this week, was that um, a few years ago, uh, God really clarified for me that when a problem comes in our lives, also packaged in that problem is an opportunity. And... Uh, and I remember that this week, and I thought, this is a big problem for us as a church. How do we actually move forward in the vision that God has for us to be here, not just like we've been here 60 years? How do we have a facility that can serve this community, this larger community, for the next 60 years? And uh, had a sense that this is an opportunity, a spiritual opportunity for us to grow in a way that's, that's going to actually bear dividends for decades to come. 50, 60 years. That's, that's what God keeps giving. He keeps giving me the number 60. And I keep looking forward and saying, what, could we, what investment could we as a community make like 60 years ago, a, a small group of Christians bought this land and uh, built a, a building and, and formed a, 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 a center of a, a church community. Um, what could we do in our time that's going to pay, pay dividends and somebody's going to be talking about us in... Uh, 2082 or something like that. Isn't that crazy, 2082? Um, man, uh, so excited. So come on out, get your questions answered, and then let's be thinking about in the next months how we can together pool our resources like we've done before. This is a generous community. How can we actually sacrificially and generously um, stretch so that God might provide and, and that this would be a spiritual story, a spiritual journey for all of us as we uh, look ahead? Amen? Man, so I want to just pause here. Let's just take a moment. Uh, God is here. Let's just acknowledge his presence. Lord, you're in the midst of us. Uh, We are grateful, and in this moment, we turn our eyes towards you, and uh, we ask that you might again, as you've done many, many times here, would you speak to your people? Help us to be listeners today. 
and not just hearers of the word, but help us to, to uh, go into what you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, on the whole problem theme, question for you this morning is how many of you have a problem? How many of you in your life, you have a problem? How many uh, of you, the person sitting next to you has a problem? How many of you, the person next to you is your problem? <laughs> saw that hand. I saw, well, lots of hands there. Reason I ask is because the people I want to speak to this morning are those who have a problem, and if you don't have a problem, I would like you to call our church office and we will assign you one, okay? Um, one writer I know suggests that in our day, in a way, you'll be defined by your problem. You'll be defined by your ultimate or your biggest problem. Uh, if you want, you can choose to be devoted to the problem of how can I be rich? Or how can I be successful? Or how can I get security? Or how can I be healthy? Or you can devote yourself to a nobler problem. But in a way, you will be de defined by whatever problem you choose to embrace. Yet one of the, the greatest questions to ask is, what is your problem? <laughs> you might want to do that, but in a way we should kind of almost ask ourselves regularly as a community, what is your problem? By which I mean, do you have a problem that is worthy of your best energies? Do you have that kind of problem worthy of your life? What, what are you devoting your life to, to try and work through and solve? In what ways do you want the world to be different because you were in it? People who follow Jesus regularly ask this question, God, what problem in your world would you like me to address? Followers of Jesus actually can, can intentionally embrace problems. And a lot of times people are actually yearning to know what kind of problem they should devote their life to. That's, that's part of knowing what God's will is for you. And here's what I want to say in this message this morning is, is very often a sense of calling comes when we begin to, to pay attention to what moves our hearts. A sense of calling comes. I start to know what, what problem that God wants me to, to work on when I begin to pay attention, not just to, to list the, the list of endless troubles that are going on out there in the world, but what is it that genuinely moves my heart? I've noticed when somebody sees a problem and they get passionate about it, they, they get angry and they get all kind of fired up. They say, somebody's got to do something about that. And it often starts that way. And today we're, we're starting this little series called Being People with a Mission. We're, 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 we're talking about our building with a mission. But we never want to forget that our primary thing is a people. We are as a people with a mission. We keep that in focus because we're called to be difference makers in our world. And we're going to look at a man who did exactly that. His name is Nehemiah. And we're going to get into the text, and we're just going to have a, a look at Nehemiah. If you have a, your Bibles, you can turn there. Nehemiah chapter uh, 1 and to, to chapter 2. Um, you might want to open it. We're going to kind of walk that through, so it would be good if you did. Uh, you'll have one in your app or... Uh, Holler at Lynn. She'd be happy to loan you a Bible this morning. I'm going to read in beginning of verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. You can follow along on the screen, by the way. It should be there. Is that, are there notes there? No? 
There we go. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now notice his response. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What's your problem? At the beginning of the story, Nehemiah doesn't have much of a problem. You know, he's, he's living in exile, he's an Israelite, but he's living in Susa, the, the capital city of, of Persia, which was the rich superpower of that day. And he's probably got a lot of considerable influence. We'll see that in a bit. But he's visited by his brother who's returned from his homeland, and his brother lets him in on how Jerusalem's in trouble. You know, it's, it's actually in ruins. The walls are broken, and the people are in disgrace. And even though, you know, Nehemiah's life is going pretty well, he's, he's brokenhearted about this. And notice the impact. It says, I sat and I wept for days. I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed. And it's helpful to understand that in that day, uh, you know, walls were really important. A broken wall would have been a big deal. A, a wall in ancient days is what made a city safe to live. That meant that there could be commerce and, and trade and, and jobs and prosperity and food enough to eat and, and education, all that kind of infrastructure. It was all about art and, and worship. Walls were often core infrastructure to a city. And without walls, there's, there's fear, there's violence, there's uncertainty, there's hunger. And worse to Nehemiah, there's spiritual poverty. Now, notice he doesn't just say they're in trouble, but he says they're in disgrace. They're spiritually disoriented. They're, they're actually wondering uh, about God. Uh, are we still God's people? You know, are, are, are we still cared for by him? They don't know. And I, and I just want to say we live in a world with broken walls all over the place. Communities, families, peoples. Where is, they bro where is there a broken wall that breaks your heart. What's your problem? What's my problem? I, I want to ask all of this so that we get kind of concrete about this. For Nehemiah, it's broken walls in Jerusalem, and he can't stand it, but he can't fix it. So he doesn't start by actually doing anything. It allows kind of the pain of the problem to kind of go to the core of his bones. And what he does is he pours out to God his heart in prayer. It's an amazing prayer. We got to read this. Just follow along in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength. 
and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him faith, favor in the presence of this man. The man he's talking about there is the success in front of the king. But it's just an awesome prayer. And it's worth paying attention to the language. Nehemiah is facing a huge problem, but he doesn't start with how big the problem is. Where does he start? <laughs> you know, he starts with how big his God is. You know, a lot of our prayers can kind of, you know, devolve into like worrying out loud, right? We just are kind of like pouring. And I, and I got to say, we got to pour out our troubles. But it's often a better place to start with pouring out who God is in our lives, like the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Where does it start? Our Father, who art in heaven. This is not super spiritual. This is not pious language. This is getting orientated to, to reality. This is where Nehemiah lives. Lord, the God of heaven. And, and heaven is not something way out there. Heaven is up the place where God's will is being done. And this means that God can be right here and listening. Some people say, when I pray, it feels like my prayers don't go past the ceiling. Folks, they don't have to. <laughs> He's right here. He's in our midst by his spirit. So when you pray this week, you might spend time lingering in these words of Nehemiah, and then, and then you can just be real honest with God. That's grace, right? That's, that's part of, of prayer. You don't have to fake it. Yeah, do I really believe that there's a great and awesome God who's Lord of heaven? Do I, I believe he's utterly loving? And if I don't, I actually have freedom to be honest about that. You know, if, if I have doubts, that's okay. We can actually take those seriously. In fact, I'd say part of discovering a genuine and authentic faith is actually paying attention to our doubts and actually wrestling with them. And you get a more real faith at the end of that. This is what we can do as followers of Jesus. With Nehemiah, he continues to pray and he confesses not just Israel's sin, but his family's sin and his own sin. And then he says at the end, give your servant success today. So he goes from paying attention to being brokenhearted to taking action where his heart is broken and then things can begin to happen. Um, there's an old saying, some people make things happen, some people watch things happen, some people wonder what happened. <laughs> A large number of people actually won't even notice that the walls are broken down, Right? They won't even see it. Another large group will, will complain about the wall. Somebody ought to do something about that. But one guy can't let it go, and it's Nehemiah. And this is way more, by the way, than, than what Nehemiah is going to do about the problem. This is what God and Nehemiah can do together. That, that's a spiritual reality that, that we can live in. There's this God of heaven. And actually being a disciple of Jesus is learning what God and I can do together. And so prayer really is actually talking to God about what God and I can do together. So you see, if my life, if the way I live, if my life is not about what God and I can do together, then actually prayer is going to be real frustrating. Prayer is, prayer is going to be real hard because prayer is just talking to God about what we're doing together. Now, this is where things get interesting. Chapter 2. We read, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. 
I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, just to back up here, the text says this happened in the month of Nisan. That's right after the month of Toyota, just so you're wondering. But Nisan was the, the fourth month of the year. In other words, this is actually four months after the month that Nehemiah got the news about the broken walls. Four months. And, and so what you have is Nehemiah who spends four months doing what? Waiting and praying. And, and his first move is actually not to do or to say anything. What did, what did he do? Very interesting what he does. He was sad in the king's presence. That's his, like, action strategy. <laughs> it's quite something. Now, of course, um, we know that he was devastated when he first heard the news about Jerusalem. We know he was just broken about it. But somehow he doesn't let the, sing, the king see that. He's able to mask that. But one day, he lets himself be sad in the king's presence. It's just an amazing story. And here's why it's such a big deal. Nehemiah, we're told, was the cupbearer. Um, that means he was in charge of selecting and serving the royal wines to the king. Some of you think that'd be a really great job, being in charge of the wine cellar. But cupbearers were actually entrusted with often far more responsibility than that. Sometimes they held high levels of responsibility. In fact, one ancient Babylonian source says this about another cupbearer named Akir. Now, Akir was cupbearer, keeper of the signet ring, and in charge of the administration of financial accounts. Sounds odd to us to make the wine guy also the finance guy. Maybe explains why the Babylonians still aren't ruling the world today. But the, the point is, Nehemiah was this high-ranking official, and Nehemiah was also kind of in charge of the secret service. He's in charge of security around the king, making sure the king wasn't poisoned. So actually, a good day for a wine taster, you lived. That was a good day for a wine taster. What this also meant was in Nehemiah's day that if, a, if the king ever suspected that the cupbearer was not fully loyal or the cupbearer was somehow perhaps open to getting bribes from his enemies, you know, that cupbearer would be instantly terminated. In HR terms, that would be terminated without severance or maybe with severance, depending on how he was, no, anyway, depending on how he was terminated. Terminated meant terminated. In that day, if the king asked the cupbearer, how are you doing? As cupbearer, you'd have one response. Best day of my life, sir. I live for this, sir. It'd be an honor to be poisoned for you, sir. That's how you responded to the king. To, to deliberately display your sadness and your discontent before the king was actually a life-threatening risk. And, and Nehemiah knows that, and Nehemiah does it, and the king notices it. Nehemiah? Are you not happy in your job? Should we have a conversation here? We're told Nehemiah was not just afraid. He was very much afraid. And for very good reason. But, but he says here, here's why I'm sad. And he describes the conditions in his hometown. Notice Nehemiah never mentions the name Jerusalem to the king. And he does that for good reason. He's actually navigating a bit of a minefield here. Jerusalem is the capital city of a country that 
you know, Persia has taken over, that, that Persia runs. And the concern would be if Jerusalem gets rebuilt, it might encourage the people there to revolt and, and uh, they, they might rebel against Persia and get their independence. And actually, there's already been one attempt to rebuild Jerusalem. We read about it in Ezra. Uh, by the way, Ezra and, and Nehemiah are next door to each other in the Bible. They're kind of contemporaries of each other. Um, and, and get this, the guy who ordered the rebuilding under Ezra's time, uh, you know, ordered that rebuilding stopped, was precisely this same king, King Artaxerxes. We see this in Ezra 4, where we read, Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that the city will not be rebuilt. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? You see, Nehemiah is not just sad before the king. He's saying, actually, king, I think you made a policy mistake there when you didn't allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. I think you ought to reverse your decision. Cupbearers did not say that kind of thing to the king in that day. That's that's what's going on in the story, and that's kind of why it's so explosive. He just put his life on the line to tell the king he'd made this big mistake. And there's silence in the story for who knows how long. And then it says, the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I love this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then I prayed to my God, and I said to the king. Now, in Nehemiah's first prayer, he prayed day and night for four months, you know. How long do you think the second prayer was? like a second. He's in the presence of the king in that moment. It was just this reflex prayer, a flash prayer. You see, the presence of God was so great for Nehemiah that that prayer is just kind of going on automatically all the time. He's just there. God's always in in, in the moment. He's there with him. And this is the with God life, people. This is what you and I are meant to to run on. This is where deliverance comes from a life of constant anxiety and fear. Then I prayed to my God. As I thought about this this week, I I wondered how often would our conversations with others be different if that one phrase came first. I prayed to my God, and then I said to my spouse. I I, I prayed to my God, and then I said to my boss. I I, I prayed to my God, and I said to my friend. I suggest this week, why not look and see how often you can kind of do that. Just say this Flash little prayer. Then I prayed to my God, and then I said, <laughs> because this is what Nehemiah does. And then he makes the ask. He says, if your servant has found favor, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then we have this. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, this is extraordinary. This is just enormous for, for Nehemiah. It's a huge moment, and if it were me, if I were Nehemiah, I'd, I'd be so excited to still be alive, let alone get a yes, that I would have gotten out of there, like bolted out of the room as fast as possible before the king actually changes his mind. But not Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah has a bigger problem than just his life. His primary concern was not Nehemiah. He and God are are working together on a great project for God's kingdom and and for God's people. 
And the the fact that he's doing this with God liberates him. And it actually makes him very, very bold. I also said to him, now, King, while we're on the topic and while you're in the mood to say yes, I've got a list of things here. Listen to this. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide my, me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. When he asks for safe conduct, he's basically asking for a military escort. You know, he's asking the king of Persia, would you put Persian military might at my disposal to ensure the safety of my trip and of my project? And he doesn't stop there. And may I have a letter to ASAP, keeper of the royal park. Wouldn't you want to have that job title, keeper of the royal park? So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. In other words, O king, can I have the royal credit card? (laughs) I uh, plan to, to stop at Home Depot along the way and have the Persian Empire pick up the tab for the entire project. In other words, ask big or go home. (laughs) And he does this, even though he was very much afraid. You see, he had a problem, and the problem was bigger than him. His his problem was his vision of a restored Jerusalem, and that problem is is bigger even than his fear of the king. And his vision of the Lord, the, the great and awesome God, is even bigger than the size of the problem in Jerusalem. That's the reality that, that Nehemiah is living in. And he asks really big. And then this. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Because the gracious hand of God was on me, he granted my requests. And I want to say again, these are not just words. This is not just Bible talk. Nehemiah is, is living in the reality of the kingdom of God now. He obviously had courage. He obviously had been well prepared. But in this moment, he didn't trust in his preparation. He trusted God. And friends, I'm I'm telling you, there is so much freedom from, from burden and from fear and from limitation when a human being lives under the gracious hand of God. Because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. And because of that, there's actually no room for boasting at all because it's God. And there's also no room for fear. We're going to leave Nehemiah now and, and we'll pick up on him next week. But I want to return to this question. What's your problem? What breaks your heart? If you can, would you identify it right now? Or, or ask God to show you. There's this pattern, it's just over and over and over again in Scripture. Uh, David can't stand Goliath taunting God's people. And God says, all right, you go fight him. Esther can't stand that her people are going to be the victim of a genocidal holocaust. And, And God says, all right, Esther, you go help deliver them. Paul can't stand that the Gentiles don't know Jesus. And, and so God says to Paul, okay, Paul, you go tell them. Moses can't stand it that the Israelites are under the yoke of, of slavery and, and oppression. And, and, and God says, all right, you go. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. What moves you? What, what's breaking your heart? The walls are, are broken all around us in the world around us, right? 
Children go to bed hungry every single night. Refugees live in makeshift camps and shelters, not for just for years, but for decades, as we've learned recently as a community. There's human trafficking. There's, there's drug addiction and an overdose crisis that just doesn't seem to want to go away. There's the kind of extreme poverty that cripples spirits. There's, there's family brokenness. There's, there's the building of the church around the world. So many people have never even heard of Jesus. There are so many broken walls all around us. What, what breaks your heart? What, what, what's your problem? And then you just begin to lay that out before the Lord. You, you begin to let the pain kind of sink in a little deeper into your reality. There's a guy in our church... Um, 35 years ago, he had a massive heart attack, and he should have died. And after his heart attack, he asked the question, why am I still here? Why am I still here? That, by the way, that's another great question. Why am I still here? Maybe turn to your neighbor right now and say, why are you still here? <laughs> I should ask myself that question, you know, every day. And Am I just here for me? Like, like Really? Is that really it? You know, climbing a ladder, kind of getting ahead, getting a, a nest egg, getting security, all that kind of stuff. Is that what it's about? Is it all about like us achieving some level of, of comfort so that we can kind of cruise out the rest of our days? I think, we, I think we can all answer that. No, of course not. Because I think all of us have this sense within us the truth of the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God that has come and that's available in a future in God's great universe. It's written on every human heart. So that guy with a heart attack, he, uh, he's gone on to live a great life of impact. I got permission to kind of talk about him today a little bit. His problem? People far from God. People who have never heard do you know what he's devoted his life to since? His heart attack actually meant that, that he couldn't actually kind of hold a regular job, and so his regular job has just kind of been to love on people. He, he's just a great maker of friends, and he just makes all kinds of friends from people outside the church, and he loves them and occasionally tells them the good news about Jesus. He's lived a life that exemplifies this whole thing. He got a problem, and he got serious about it, and he's just laser-focused on that. What's your problem? And if you don't have a problem, may I suggest that you need a God-sized problem? Why are you still here? Might look dramatic. Might look far simpler than that. Um, but we were made to be people with a mission. <laughs> Maybe the broken walls for you are, are real personal for you. It might be your marriage or your family or your own soul. I think it would be good for you to be able to name that broken wall. In, in, in these next weeks during these, this series, I, I'd ask you to be and to do what Nehemiah did. Will you begin to pray over these concerns of your heart? That's what Nehemiah does. He has this unbelievable conversation with the king. He risks his life he gets resources from Persia, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and then from there on out, everything is easy, right? Not, not so much. We'll learn more next week. 
But I just want to say this in conclusion. Coming out of Easter weekend, where we remember the best news ever, that our God took on the greatest problem through Jesus. What awesome news. Why don't we pray? God, uh, we just recognize this morning that we live in a world just filled with problems, but they are not just out there outside of us, they're also inside of us. But this morning, we, we celebrate the living hope we have in Christ. We remember, God, today that we are not the fixers. We are the fixies. We're the broken ones. And we're so grateful for Jesus for facing the most challenging of all problems and conquering it. And now, God, you're right here. We believe that when we pray, it's, it's not we're shouting out to the universe somewhere. We believe you are near us and with us. You're closer than we think. The great and awesome God of heaven, you're right here. So I ask, would you speak? Would you touch each person listening? Would you lead us into considering what broken wall you might want each of us to give our life to? Would you make it even more clear for us as a church that we would know what broken walls you've called Hillside Community Church to in our neighborhood and in our community, God? We know we're not just here for ourselves. Lord, you send us out into the world, and we want to we be your people on a mission in the world, and we want to make a difference. I pray, uh, Lord, to help us notice the movements of our hearts. And would you teach us to pray? And lead us so that in partnership with you, we might bring your healing and hope and renewal to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.